Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field, so please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Hello, and I want to welcome everyone to another version of the WCAPS podcast. Uh, we're doing this right before the uh, the holiday break here in 2018, getting ready for 2019. Um, and it's been a very good year for WCAPS. We have some great podcasts, and we don't want to uh, end the year without also having some more additional uh, excellent uh uh, folks here who can uh, do podcasts with us. So I want to welcome Lisa Marie, uh, Lisa Marie Aria, um, and uh, she has uh, some great things to say about what she's doing and uh, things she's interested in. Uh, she's been doing some. Um, she's one of she's one of our next generation uh, 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 folks and has a really bright future based on some of the things that she's been doing on her own actually. Um, so I'd love for her to talk about some of that. But first, let's just start by having uh, Lisa just say a little bit about herself and, and her background. So, Lisa? Well, thank you so much for having me on, Bonnie, first of all. Um, and thank you to your listeners for joining in. My name is Lisa, as you mentioned. I am currently a SCOBO Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in D.C., I'm currently working with a project on nuclear issues under Rebecca Hurstman, um, and I'm here as part of a Scoville Fellowship, which I can talk a little bit more about later. Um, but to give you a little bit of background, I graduated from Wellesley College, where I pursued a degree in international relations and political science. Um, after graduation, I headed off on a Fulbright to Taiwan. And after the end of that fellowship, I joined a part of the SCOBO cohort here in D.C., which has been an honor and privilege and a really great experience thus far. Great. And um, you mentioned that uh, that you you went to uh, get your degree in uh, international relations and political science. Where did that interest for international relations and poli-sci come from? Do you know? Do you remember? Yes, I actually have a pretty clear recollection. So it actually came from reading. I read a lot as a child. And in middle school, I read uh, President Barack Obama's um, book, Dreams from My Father. And I learned that he actually majored in international relations and political science. And up to that point, I hadn't really had, I, I didn't have an interest in politics. But reading that book really opened my eyes to the possibility of being involved and international relations just really spoke to me and became my passion as I went on throughout my academic career. That's, that's great. It's nice to hear about the, you already answered one of my questions about role models. Because uh, I can see you're oh, already there you go. That's right. Um, so, um, so where are you from in the U.S.? So I'm from Maryland, born and raised uh, 18 years until I headed off to Wellesley College. So I'm from right outside the outskirts of D.C. actually. Great. And um, why don't you say a little bit about uh, the Scoville Fellowship since you, since you mentioned it? Sure. So the Scoville Fellowship is a great program that was started in the 80s. And the goal was to bring young professionals, either recent uh, graduates from either an undergraduate institution or a graduate program to D.C. and really help them build their career. Um, it's a fellowship that brings about three to four fellows into the into D.C. every six months and places them in a think tank that matches their research interests and vice versa. So once you make it past the initial interview 
process, you get to interview with think tanks in the area and really try and figure out where you want to spend the next six to nine months. And um, say a little bit more about what you're what you're doing and and the uh, think tank that you're that you're at right now. Sure. So I'm currently working on a couple of projects with the Project on Nuclear Issues. We're currently looking at an emerging technologies project that's trying to assess if new information or new methods of collecting information and the capabilities that we used to do that could potentially be destabilizing during a nuclear crisis. So in previous times, more transparency was seen as a good thing. You know, the USSR and the U.S. having eyes on where their nuclear warheads were was considered to be a, a product or something that would produce stability. Whereas nowadays, because we're seeing a lot of technologies with dual use capabilities, that is to say technologies that can be used either in a conventional conflict or in a, in a nuclear uh, capacity, then that blurs the lines a little and might potentially increase the uh, possibility of misperception or first strike incentives. And so our project is really trying to distill that and get at how these technologies could potentially impact stability. Um, so why don't you say a little bit about how long you've been uh, at, the, at the organization and um, at the think tank. And I guess this also says a little bit about the duration of the Scoble Fellowship. Sure, so I've been at CSIS since September and the Scoville lasts six to nine months. You get to decide that once you uh, get to DC and write out your contract with your organization. So I will be here until about June, which is exciting because there's still a couple of other projects that we're working on. Um, in addition to the Emerging Technologies Project, we're also working on a chemical weapons accountability project, which is still in its nascent stages, but is looking to be a very interesting endeavor. And I'm also working on an independent project with one of our senior fellows here on counterterrorism accountability and how to hold the U.S. government accountable for the use of force. Um, in counterterrorism operations, which is actually what I focused on more in my undergraduate career. And um, why don't you say a little bit what you've what you've what you've learned from uh, from the experience that you've had so far at CSIS? One of the key takeaways, I think, for me, and this is something that I kind of thought was going to be the case going in, is that you don't necessarily need to know everything about an issue area to be competent in an issue area. And what I mean by that is that the Scovo Fellowship has a nuclear slant. It used to be more so the case. I think now it's expanded to encompass people with a broad uh, array of interests. But because it originally did have that slant, I'm working on the project on nuclear issues. And I don't necessarily have, that's not, that wasn't my focus in undergrad. And so my, my key takeaway has been that you can still take that rigorous uh, analysis that you did or used on your senior thesis or whatever it might be and apply it to a new set of issues and use that to kind of gain a better understanding of the, the field that you're in. It's kind of pivoting within your own field, but um, it's been a great learning experience. And I have a great team here that helps me, you know, learn faster and learn more every day. So how do you think you might use what you've learned, the lessons that you've learned and, and, what you want to do after Scoville? I think, and, and not just in Scoville, but I think my Fulbright experience actually helped with this as well. But the idea that I think a lot of times we're hesitant to 
get involved with issues that we don't have 100% comfort or familiarity with. And I think that that inhibits people who are truly talented from grappling with issues that they might actually find really interested, interesting and enjoyable and actually maybe even build a career in them. And so I think that for me, what working on nuclear issues or teaching abroad, um, both of those things are pretty far outside of my comfort zone when I started out. But as you realize that you can become comfortable, that you can learn and you can grow, then that kind of builds your confidence and allows you to say, okay, well, then there's no shortage of things you can tackle if you are willing to put in the work and really focus and try to uh, get, gain a better understanding of the issues you're working with. And um, say a little bit how you got interested in the field of nuclear, um, nuclear issues. I think one of the key things was my interest in Chinese um, and Taiwanese relations. So I spent a summer in Taiwan during my undergraduate career studying Mandarin intensively. And then I spent a year abroad again this past uh, year. And so for me, looking at what a nuclear armed conflict between the U.S. and China might look like, although that's, of course, not you know, a very distant future and it's not something that I, I hope will come to pass, I think being in Taiwan and realizing the potential implications of something like that on the community that I was working within was incredibly uh, fascinating to me and something that really piqued my interest. And it's also an issue that's incredibly salient in today's um, international landscape. And I think it's something that we could all stand to know a little more about. I think that's an excellent point. And um, so, I mean, I mean, you're still still young uh, working in the area, but what, what would you say to date has been the most exciting aspect of what you've been working on so far? And you can include, you know, you said the work before you, before, you know, before you, um, you know, came to, to, to CSIS and the Scoba Fellowship? That's a great question. So I think one of the most exciting things is actually the team that I'm working with more so I think than anything else. I'm working with an incredible group of women who are so dedicated to this field and to advancing our understanding of it. And I think that coming into work every day and having that team be there has been incredibly inspiring and has really made it so that I want to stay in the field and continue working and continue trying to make our society better through uh, the field of national security. Great. And and I'd like to actually um, uh, shift a little bit now because uh, I want to also talk about some of the work you're doing on your own. But first, I want to sure. uh, chat a little bit about um, what is somebody um, as, a, as a young person in this field and um, you know, a young woman in this field as well. I mean, what is what do you think are what do you think some of the challenges um, in being a woman in the field? And and you've also, I mean, how inspiring it is to be working with women who are so dedicated to this issue. Um, but what do you think are some of the challenges that still exist in in the field as uh, approaching this as a woman? Sure. So I think. The, the lack of women. I happen to be very fortunate to work on a team that is six women plus our intern who is a guy, um, which is incredibly rare, I think. I also think that when it comes to the voices that we ask to sit on panels to be keynote speakers, I think that unfortunately there's still the tendency to go and resort to 
the status quo, right? Because a lot of times the people who are making the decisions to have people on these panels or to invite the keynote speakers are reaching within their own networks. And just because of the way that society is structured, that ends up looking very homogenous, unfortunately. And so I think one of the biggest challenges is kind of getting people in positions of power to think outside of their own networks to when they're asked for a keynote speaker or for someone to sit on a panel to pause and really think about it, about what voices should be in the room um, or who deserve to be heard and aren't usually given that opportunity. I really do think that even beyond that, being a woman of color, we need to make sure that when we're talking about diversity and gender diversity, that we're also talking about who the women in the room are, because I think that that also is incredibly important and it really does matter. And I think you're very right about that, because I know that one of the things that WCAT's been trying to do is one of our goals is to, um, you know, put more women of color out there to be seen and to be on panels and to be in the media. Um, but it also takes the other side, as you said, it's, it's, it's making sure that there the women are there, but it also takes the mindset of people to not, as you say, you know, do the usual thing and just, just automatically reach out to the people they know who often are the same people as them, which in this field are, are, are the same, you know, often white men. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it, it has to be on both sides. Um, you know, we can do what we can, for example, in WCAPS to try to get the women out there. And, and we have an expert page that we're developing just to list the women of color who are working in these fields, just, you know, just to ensure that people know they're out there, both, you know, young, young people like yourself and be a career woman. But it does take um, outreach by, um, by those in the field as well uh, to make a difference. No, um, I think you're absolutely right. And I know you've only been in the, in the field for a short time, but um, um, I mean, what do, what do you, I guess you, uh, have you seen any, you know, since you started, have you, uh, have you seen changes at all? I mean, I know it's early in your career to answer the, ask the question, but I, I wanted just to throw that out there and see if you have any thoughts on that. Or do you, or what do you, what do you, what do you look for in the future? Sure. So I think I've been very fortunate to be working uh, under a boss, Rebecca Hurston, who really makes that a focus of, um, you know, the people that she's bringing in. And she really makes an effort to make sure that we have a diverse set of voices being represented. Um, as you mentioned, it's been a short time that I've been in the field, but I think one of the things that I've seen changing is the engagement with issues of diversity. And I think that even though a lot of times the way that we're approaching those issues is still lacking in some capacity, I think it's good that we're at least bringing that to the forefront and understanding that these are conversations that need to be had. And I think that a lot of people look at it as, okay, this benefits people of color or women, but at the end of the day, it also benefits the field. There's been plenty of research done on how more diverse teams come up with more creative problem solving and come up with more creative ideas and solutions to critical issues. And I think that as people working in the national security field, which is such a critical and complex area, we should be in relentless pursuit of the most talented, the most diverse set of perspectives we can get. Well, I totally agree with that. And I, you know, one thing that I often notice, you know, the type of challenges that we have to face, that we face today, which are really, you know, really in, almost insurmountable to think about the environmental challenges we have, you know, uh, challenges in human rights, um, challenges for, you know, as a result of immigration issues. Um, 
you know, these are challenges that really do need um, great solutions. And, you know, we should never cut ourselves short um, in what we can achieve by not hearing the different voices, who may, somebody who may have an excellent idea, who may not be at the table, and we may be losing something. Exactly. Um, so I totally, totally agree with you on that. Um, so just another question. I know already you already mentioned this, um, and you you mentioned reading the book about uh, that uh, that Barack Obama. But I'm wondering, who are some of your other role models? That's a really interesting question because it's something that I really grappled with, and that. Growing up, I don't think that I looked externally for role models. I think that the people that have been the most influential in my life have been people who are close to me, family members, um, specifically my parents, who kind of shepherded me along this way, even though I wasn't necessarily equipped from the get-go with everything that I needed to be successful. Their support and their belief in what I could achieve has been one of the greatest assets that I have to this day. And I think that without their example, without their dedication to my education, I wouldn't be here. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about enough, how supportive environments really do enable uh, students and you know kids who come from underrepresented or marginalized communities to succeed. I mean, we need to look at those structural factors if we want to really understand what is preventing kids from getting to those tables so that they can contribute and make their perspectives heard. Well, I think it's perfect, perfectly fine to have your parents as uh, role models. I know mine certainly have been. And I know that when I first entered the field that I, you know, my area of weapons and mass destruction, when I entered in the early 90s, there were very few, if any, people of color who were senior um, that I could look up to when I, when I, you know, just graduated from, you know, from graduate school. Um, so I didn't have a lot of, def certainly not a lot of people of color or women um, uh, to look up to at that point because they weren't there. But um, there were a few, but not many. Um, but yes, parents uh, can certainly, certainly role models. Um, and, you know, having role models right in your own environment, uh, I think is very important as well. Um, so let's say a little bit about um, what you do, some of the other things that you're doing outside of the great work you're doing at CSIS. Um, talk a little bit about what, you're, what, you're, what you've been doing for the past few years and why. Sure. So, sure. So I think you're getting at the Breaking Cycle Project, which is an organization that I started after my first year at Wellesley College. It's an organization that's geared towards helping first-generation college students through their undergraduate journey or essentially to getting to their undergraduate journey through their undergraduate journey and even post if that is the case. And so what we're really trying to do is help empower first generation college students to access higher education and to be successful um, in their higher education careers if that's what they choose to pursue, right? We're not saying that every single person should go to college. We understand that for some people, that might not be the right choice, but we do strongly believe that every student who wants to pursue a higher education degree should be able to do that within our society. And so we're really trying to bridge that gap. Currently, there was a study done a couple years ago by, I believe, uh, Pew, and they came out with a statistic that said that only 11% of first-generation students graduate college within six years. 
to 11%. And it's a figure that we don't talk about, but that I think is critical to understanding the massive amounts of talent that we are leaving on the table every single year. And we need to do a better job as a society and as a country of making sure that these kids who are incredibly talented, who have the desire to get ahead, are enabled by the system that they're in to do so. And so our project is essentially comprised of two parts. We run a blog where we interview first-generation students from all across the country at different stages of their careers and really talk about what it meant for them to go to college, what the process was like, what kind of pitfalls were there, if there were any, what are some of the lessons they've learned, and really try to demystify what that means, what going to college means and what it entails. And then we also do blog posts on anything ranging from how to network, how to write a cover letter, and things of that nature that maybe don't get taught in a classroom, but that are learned from either, you know, your parents' experience. But if your parents haven't gone to college, then oftentimes you don't have that knowledge or that fountain of knowledge to help you get through. And so we're really trying to provide as much information as possible so that when students do go into college, they're equipped with as much uh, knowledge as possible to be successful. And then the second part of our project is working with high schools and nonprofits in the D.C. area and doing these presentations where we talk about giving a speech or how to do public speaking or how to do an interview and really try to help students navigate that space. I think that's really amazing that you did this and you, you, know, you started doing this um, while you were in college. And um, I, I, mean, I think you, you, you definitely outlined the very good reasons why um, you're doing what you're doing. Is there anything particular that made that sparked this um, about this particular interest in you that motivated you uh, to do it um, and to be so committed to it, you know, so, you know, so early in your career? Yes. So my my grandfather used to say that people can take everything from you, but they can never take your education. And I know that the reason that I get to engage with these issues that I care about every day and meet the amazing people that I meet is because I was able to access a wonderful education. And I think that everybody should have that opportunity. And so after my first year of college, I realized just how incredibly privileged I was to even get to attend a four-year institution. I had a lot of friends in high school who got into wonderful schools and had to turn it down because of financial considerations or their parents weren't willing to let them go out of school or they didn't know how to fill out a FAFSA. And so to me, I couldn't understand how someone who was so talented should would be robbed of an opportunity simply because they didn't know how to navigate the system. And I really didn't want that to happen to any kids, you know, coming up in the pipeline. And for me, I, I spent a lot of my first year at college grappling with the knowledge that I knew I didn't have. And that wasn't academic knowledge. It was environmental knowledge. It was figuring out what office hours were, what help room was. It was trying to figure out how to approach professors and establish a relationship and why you need a relationship with your professors. And so all of that to me was an incredibly steep learning curve. And it was something that I wanted to make easier for the next generation, or at least try to. And what, what were some of the challenges that you faced when you first started trying to pull all this together while you were also uh, going to class on a regular basis? Well, I actually think that the time management wasn't so much an issue. It was more so believing that I had something that needed to be said and that I could ask people to hear me out. And so it was kind of surmounting that initial doubt 
that was, I think, the hardest part of it. But I think that once I got comfortable uh, making my pitch to schools and interacting with administrators, I was very young at the time. And so I think that that actually was the biggest obstacle because a lot of people see a 19-year-old and they want to come in and talk to students. And it's there's a little bit of hesitancy there, understandably so. And so I really had to make a case for it and go into these meetings prepared. And I think it was a great learning experience for me. But at the time, it was definitely difficult trying to put it all together. I think what also helped was that I started doing this in the summer. So I had a little bit more time. Um, but once school started, it was really just a matter of figuring out how to best manage my time, which, again, was a wonderful skill to learn early on. And what and what kept you persevering on this? And what kept you still, you know, believe? I mean, what gave you the strength internally? Um, where did that come from? Um, and it could be your parents, I guess, and you, you were saying, but where does that come from? And I think that'd be interesting to young adults who are also feeling challenged with some of the things that they're trying to do and, and, and being forced to ask themselves some of those same questions. Sure. So I think... I've always been a very dedicated person and I've always believed that my role in society should be to leave a better legacy behind, to try and make it better in some way, shape or form. And for me, this is a cause that I care about so much. I took a break in between, right? So I, I believe around my junior or senior year, I took a break and said, if this is something I really care about, I will come back to it. And then it was actually when I was, when I just graduated and was in Taiwan that it felt like something was missing that I, I couldn't actually have the kind of fulfilling career that I wanted without this aspect of it. And that aspect for me is giving back and making sure that just because I've been able to access opportunities that have been incredible and changed my life in so many ways, that doesn't mean that everybody else is getting afforded those same opportunities. And I feel a responsibility to make sure that I do my part to help in any way I can. Well, I think your point about giving back is an excellent one. Um, I think it's so important. Um, you know, when, you know, and you, and you're giving back early, <laughs> you know, while you're still, you know, working on your goals and achieving what you're trying to achieve, you're already starting to give back. And I think that's really amazing. And it says a lot for what I think you will be doing with your, you know, as you progress in your career, you know, recognizing the need to, to reach back and help others. And I definitely, definitely understand it and relate to that. Um, do you, are you, you said you have a, a program in DC. Are you located in any other, other city or state? Um, or is it, uh, is it mainly, you know, podcasts are put up on your website and then you have just a location in DC? So we're actually currently working on expanding potentially to Miami and maybe California as well. Um, so we are trying to find ways to really expand our reach. But for right now, we are just in D.C. and hopefully next year we'll have another location up in Florida. And, uh, you know, I think that's great that you, um, I mean, I think you're doing so much. So um, I think it's great that you're in D.C. and that you're looking forward to do, uh, to do it in other cities as well. And um, how, how do you locate the people who are doing the um, we're doing the lessons learned for the DC programs. In terms of the people that we interview? Right. You know, so who, you say you, uh, people give advice about, you know, you know, right. Same, right so like who, who, who are the folks that you have doing that? That's an excellent question. So a lot of it is people that I've met along the way, but a lot of it is also doing reading and looking at, 
what universities put up in terms of what their, their recent graduates are doing. And there are a lot of higher education blogs that you can also access. And a lot of times we'll see someone who wrote a post about their own first done challenges. And so then we'll reach out to them and say, Hey, we read your post on X blog. Would you be willing to interview with us? So a lot of it is getting creative about how we're reaching people. It's anything from LinkedIn to Facebook to cold emailing. We had a professor who was actually willing to just answer a cold email and come in and talk to us for a while and share his experiences teaching at a women's college um, as a first-gen American and first-gen college student. So I think that people are very willing to share their stories. It's more a matter of finding them. And so I think we've done a, a pretty good job of doing that. And where, where do you see the organization going in the next five years? You mentioned expanding to other, you know, expanding your reach. Um, are there other things that you would like to see in, in terms of the growth of, of the work that you're doing here? Sure. So one of the key things that I'm looking towards in the next couple of years is formally incorporating into a nonprofit and really being able to expand our reach and the resources that we have to do this kind of work. A lot of times we'd like to go to other locations, but the travel is a factor or travel cost is a factor. And so incorporating into a nonprofit and being able to fundraise is really the next step for us in reaching more students. Great. Um, so I'd like to uh, spend the last few minutes, um, you know, with you giving some of your, your, you know, giving advice to young women, particularly young women of color who, you know, may be listening to this, you know, anywhere from around, anywhere around the U.S. and they may not have the role models uh, that they, that they need uh, to, you know, to feel like they can actually, you know, be in the field or seeing others like themselves. Um, so, you know, if, if a young girl of, of color comes and says, you know, uh, you know, wants to, how do I, how do I do this? And, you know, how, you know, where do I get the strength to do this? And, you know, those kind of questions, uh, what advice do you give them? That's a great question. I think the first thing is to come to terms with the fact that not everybody is going to believe in you and that's okay. That's not a reflection on you. That's a reflection on them. And as long as you know that you are committed, that you're putting in the work, I look at it as circumventing that. If one person doesn't think that I'm capable of doing X work, just find someone who does. And I think that's so much of being successful is not getting discouraged easily. And I think that as you're starting out in your career as a woman, as a young woman of color, it's very easy to internalize what people tell you or to internalize interactions. And I think that the moment that you realize that those don't say anything about you, that's the moment where you can really focus and hone in on what you're good at and finding the community that will support you. And having a community is so critical. I was fortunate enough to go to a women's college that places that level of community and support at the center of its mission and having a group of women cheering for you every day who believe that you can surmount whatever obstacles are placed in front of you has been one of the most significant factors in ensuring that I kept going along the way because there have been very difficult moments. I've had moments where teachers that I really cared about and respected told me that they didn't see me doing X, Y, or Z. And looking back, it would have been so easy to just call it quits then. But again, that support system is what keeps you going. I totally agree. I mean, having people around who can, you know, even if they're not working in a particular 
field or they may not be interested in, and this goes for women of all ages, um, you know, or anyone working in a field, you know, having that support system, just somebody who can remind you that, yes, you can do it. Um, very simple words, but they really make a difference. And also, you know, the idea that it's, it's you know, we grow up in a culture that teaches us certain things and, you know, it's subconscious. And so many times we don't even understand or realize where our thoughts come from, but they come from the culture which we are, which we, you know, we grow up in. And, you know, it's, you know, it's have to get to a point where, like you're saying, you can say to yourself, how much of this is because I don't believe in myself or because the culture told me that I should not believe in myself? And how much is it is because I see things a certain way versus what culture has been telling me all my life that I'm supposed to see a certain way. And, you know, being able to be conscious of that and make that separation is so key to being successful, I think, you know, as a woman of color particularly, because we're bombarded all the time with perceptions and they're saying certain things about what we're supposed to be or how we are or what we are. And only when you can step back and, and realize what's really happening and where it's really coming from, then when you, that's when you are a little more able to say, okay, I'm gonna stop that because I know where that's coming from, get that noise out of my head and start thinking about what it is that I wanna do. And it's a constant thing, it never, it never stops because culture doesn't stop, it's always here. Um, so I totally agree with what you're saying, you know, being able to make that separation. And it's not easy because, you know, you have to make, you have to even understand where it's starting from. And so for young people to, to just, I, you know, I tell them just to think about that, maybe, you know, and let it kind of percolate in your head for a while and, you know, start to have some kind of clarity about where, where, where your thoughts really come from and why you think about yourself the way you might, you know, and what you really, and what you're really capable of. Um, and not selling yourself short. Uh, so anyway, I think I talked more on that one than you did. <laughs> no, anyway, that's perfectly uh, fine. <laughs> um, so last question is, um, you know, this this organization, WCAPS, has been really uh, something I've enjoyed. Um, and, you know, promoting the voices of women of color and issues of peace, security, which are so uh, – these issues and these policies affect women of color so, so predominantly in the U.S. and around the world. So, um, in your perspective, how do you think, what do you think WCAPS can do to um, help promote our voices and making sure that we're at the table and making sure that even if we're not at the table, that we can be a force in these fields? That's an excellent question. I think building a strong community of women, which is something that you're already doing, is key. I think the experts list is a fantastic way to have an actual place that people can go to. And it removes that the ability of people to say, well, I, I don't know any women of color and, and security because you're giving them a resource. But I also think that having greater interactions between women of color here in DC who are working on peace and security issues is very important. A lot of times I look around and I find myself to be one of the few if not the only woman of color in a room. And that can kind of trigger the thought process of maybe I am the only one. Maybe this is not a space that I should be in. And I think that once you get into a room and it's all women of color and we're all working on these issues, it can re be a really inspiring, supportive environment and just reminding each other that 
there is a community here. It's just that we're not necessarily all in the same room at the same time, or we're not necessarily represented in every space, but we're here and we're working on building that. Exactly. Thank you for that. That's, that's very helpful. Um, so I will let you go, uh, but I just want to thank you again for uh, doing this podcast uh, with me and with WCAPS. Uh, we will be staying in touch. I want to keep track of the wonderful things you're doing with your career um, and, you know, keep us all posted on what's going on. Um, and of course, to thank you for doing this so close to the holidays. Uh, when I know everybody's kind of wrapping up to hit the road. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you, and happy holidays. You too. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org. 